episode 71 at Winning at Work. Hello, everybody. I am your host, Tony Moore. Today, I've got the Vice President of Culinary from Tesame's, Thomas O'Gara. Tom is my first VP of Culinary on the podcast. You will forever have that honorary title. That and 50 cents will get you a Coke, Tom. But I am building a community within the food space, and you have to have... You gotta have a chef. You have to have the the VP who runs the the back of the kitchen to give us that perspective for our food and beverage space. Tesame's is no secret to anybody. They're in every grocery store. They're in Whole Foods. You may not know that they are the number one selling organic dressing in the U.S. You're going to find out a little bit more about what makes them so great and so tasty. We go pretty deep in some different trends. This is not really a new trend. But the origin of Farm to Table, Tom's got some unique experiences there that kind of bring that to light and the challenges, real challenges of going Farm to Table. He grew up inside of Marriott. I want to give you kind of a quick walk through his background. He spent almost 20 years at Marriott from a banquet chef to a sous chef, senior banquet chef, food and beverage development for global ops food and beverage operations for culinary in the Americas, senior culinary manager, food and beverage, and then director of food and beverage operations, and then director of culinary development at Tesame's. And now recently in the last year, he's been promoted again to VP of culinary. So we definitely have an expert coming on today. Very excited about that. But his time at Marriott was was interesting because every Marriott had a restaurant and not all of them did well. They weren't all created equal. So if there was one that was struggling or maybe the, the brand was going through a refresh, they turned to him. And he's going to kind of walk us through his unique approach. And I think, you know, if you're a restaurant operator, you can definitely learn from him how he went about bringing back uh uh, a, a restaurant's uh, livelihood and kind of bringing that back up to par in the neighborhood. So he's got some great tips around that. He kind of shares with us some of his inspiration, where he gets it from, you know, trying to figure out where does this fanaticism come from when you look at some of these brands that are very inspiring. And, you know, why do people just get so behind a brand? And we're going to explore that a little bit. And he's got a pretty nice little following on Instagram. He doesn't think of himself as a influencer, but um, he probably does have a little more pull than he's that he probably is, is even aware of himself. But his uh, Instagram handle is DMV Chef Travels. DMV Chef Travels, and I will link that in the show notes. So. I'm really excited for you guys to sit down and listen to Tom O'Gara. I could have easily talked to him for two hours. I hope you guys enjoy this. Do me a favor, help spread the influence of this episode with Tom out to your network. So if you're listening to this on LinkedIn, just share it and tag some of the groups that you enjoy sharing information with inside the Food and Beverage Network. And if you hear it on Facebook, by all means, share it there. We're on pretty much every uh, podcast platform that's out there, Spotify, iTunes, and there's lots of others. So yeah, stay tuned. Got a great episode for you today. Tom, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you for having me. 
Glad to be here. I have to tell you that Tessa Mays is truly our favorite, um, our, our, our favorite brand for um, salad dressing. And I, th- I think I told you this offline. I know y'all have tons of other products, but there's something about your balsamic vinaigrette. <laughs> there's, I think we got exposed to it when my wife was uh, on the Whole30 diet. And that's when she was kind of discovering the things that were, you know, approved. And she's like, hey, Tony, you got to try this. And we literally keep like two or three of them in our refrigerator. We, I will literally just have a spring salad with nothing on it but tesames. I will literally just go cut carrots up just so I can sop up that vinegary something that just gets me right in the back of my mouth, my taste buds. There is, you guys have put something in that. And you're responsible, and you're here now, and I'm going to figure out what it is. Yeah, they. I, I think with, with anything Tessie it's almost what we don't put into it <laughs> that makes it kind of rise to the top. Because, you know, as we had discussed before, you know, the, our products are the cleanest out there. They're literally how you would make them at home if you were using a simple recipe. You know, whenever you're making a nice little vinaigrette or something like that, you don't typically add some xanathan gum and other <laughs> little things to thicken it up you make it as you know oil vinegar a little bit of flavoring and seasoning and that's it and that's nice and organic natural it, exactly and it's you know it's been great to see the company grow over the years and as we sometimes hear from people that it's it's not a fad you know our dressing touches a lot of the food tribes out there And it's started in 2008 and it's only grown steadily since then. And it's something as I, you know, going through trainings and other things over the years, I was telling people that people or food is going to continue to simplify over the years. It'll be a slow march to get there, but the more people care about what they're putting in their bodies, the more people caring about what's going on what they're feeding their children, they start to look at the labels. And it's the same thing I tell our salespeople when they're asking for a pitch on a new product or looking at ours versus a competitor. I just tell them to flip it over, look at the label and compare and we win every single time. So it's, uh, you know, it's great to see the consumers reacting to and continuing to buying. And it's been a great journey to be on. Yeah, it's not just that, you know, you win with the fewest maybe ingredients, but you win with flavor and that's, you know, you want both. Well, I'm just really excited that you're here, Tom, because you're my first vice president of culinary and I'm just, I'm really fascinated to kind of hear your perspective on what's happening in the food and beverage world and given all your experiences, obviously you're coming out of of a history at Marriott. So is, I'm just going to be thrilled just to kind of kind of pick your brain a little bit more because obviously you come from a, a service background. You can't spend nearly you know two decades with one of the, the the top service brands in the world and not have a unique way of going to market and thinking about you know how you interact with people. So with that as the backdrop, I mean, what would you say are these general trends that you're seeing right now? in the world of food and culinary? The trends I'm really seeing is 
you know, your average person can see these in the newspaper these days is that everywhere is understaffed. Literally every restaurant you go to, everyone's looking for people. And this is on top of restaurants that find made it to the, you know, we'll, we'll say we're towards the end of COVID-19 and everything is fairly opened up at this point. But now the people are coming in and there's no one to service them. And it's, it's tough to see knowing restaurants, you know, especially with the lens I have, because I can look and understand what will may be going on in the restaurant. You know, even you will say backtrack two years ago when something would happen, my wife would be like, well, the server forgot about this or where did this happen? And I could, I know what the server is responsible for. I know when I can want see the, the food maybe, Played it together a little quicker, quicker than it should have been. You could tell when things are dropped. So I kind of have a lens into the back of the house to sort some of those out. But as many times as I've been out recently, and I've you know I've traveled around California, Atlanta, New Jersey, New York, and you see it kind of everywhere. And it's it's tough to see because you know that everyone is struggling. And as much as I want to go out and support restaurants, it's it's always a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow because you see the people struggling, they're doing their best. And it, at the end of the day, you're, you've been cooped up in your house for the last year and you want to have a good meal and you want to go out and you're met with all those circumstances, which nine times out of 10, it doesn't translate to a great experience. And I go into those looking at knowing what's happening. But if you're with people that don't understand restaurants or the industry, they just start getting upset. They're like, the server's taking too long. Why isn't my drink refilled? All the little gripes into a restaurant, I feel like, are only amplified by the staffing going on in the front of the house and the back of the house. You know, so the restaurants that hung on and tried to survive now – they're still trying to survive. They've got the business. They just don't have the people to facilitate it. And it's, it's tough to watch, but it's, um, I think it's, it's part of the industry correcting itself again. You know, the, you know, when we talk about restaurants, there was some bailout money given to them, but nothing, you know, it's not like the airlines or anything like that. So it's, the this industry that was left to go on its own and survive, and now it's still trying to do that. Yeah, it's in the middle of a pivot. There's definitely a disruption going on. You know, there are third party delivery services that are picking up the slack. Of course, that takes a huge chunk of the margins, but at least it does keep those businesses up and running. Um, so. I'm curious, though, for, you know, with your background in culinary, and here you are in this fantastic brand, you know, how do you manage all the different ideas that come at you to to change something or to tweak something? I, I imagine there's all these ideas, and there you are, you know, you have all these capabilities of cooking. You know, how do you say, hey, this is a great product. We don't really need to change. We don't really need to change it. Stop asking. Yeah, that's the the fortunate part is as Tessie Mays has grown over the years, it's gone from less of a let's create 
this flavor because we want to try it because we we have a fantastic cadre of flavors and sauces and marinades that already exist. But as we start to look at what is needed, new items, unless unless it's a new market segment we're getting into, like our, our on-the-go products, but a, a dressing flavor profile, that's something that almost comes at a request of a customer. So we... You know, with I the, see. yeah, with the amount of uh, stores we're in, with the amount of uh, customers buying the product, you know, we're we're in the organic space. We're the number one selling organic dressing in the United States, and within those lines, with a brand brand that wants to bring us on, or someone that has a stock at our store we need to be nimble and react to what they're looking for, but also know when there is a space that we need to jump into. So as, as many different flavors of dressings do we have one niche that we had identified last year was on the go. So as, as our products are clean, as we know the, the lifestyle of a lot of our consumers that we have and our consumers that we want to get, we needed we know that they needed to take something on the go or just have something individually packaged knowing that they can take that as a lunch or be on their way. So we've developed a number of individual salads, individual meal kits that are branded underneath our name that we're launching a little bit more broadly in some stores now. But we understood that that was a niche where we could take our product and find value in that space and allow our customers to take things outside of their house. Yeah. There's another trend too. And I think we talked about this a little bit offline, this whole uh, farm to table, you know, you're seeing more of a demand for transparency. Where do you think people's heads should be? You know, when you think about, or when they, when they think about this idea, this concept of farm to table. Farm to table, it's, as I had trained and spoke about over the last few years, these days it's almost becoming table stakes at any restaurant that's kind of worth its salt, where the amount of local products that you're able to get and local farmers that you're able to interact with fairly easily has never been higher, you know, you know, minus any of the hiccups over the last year, but... I remember I was in Westchester, New York around 2005 that year, and we were rebranding the restaurant. And this is when I was working at a particular hotel, so I wasn't at an above property role. And we wanted the, it was called Harvest Grill, and we wanted the best of the valley. And I remember going on the internet, looking for anything local, and the closest you could get is a frozen 20 pound block of beef <laughs> that was oh, God, that sounds awful. yeah random you know scraps and pieces like you kind of had to buy the whole animal it wasn't you know you you pick and get some fillets and stuff like that it, it was and that's the way a lot of it was back then and and actually speaking of westchester the blue hill at stone barns when chef dan dan barber started that restaurant he Amongst a few others, you know, obviously Alice Waters out in California, but he really kickstarted that movement that he's like, I'm going to grow, get a farm, I'm going to grow the vegetables, I'm going to raise the animals. And from, you know, 
the full life cycle of a dish from raw product to the plate, he began to become in tr control of. And that was really what kickstarted the industry of people starting to care about that. And then the, the growers and the producers realizing that their artisan product, now they had ways to get it to people. And that's really what has been a slow drumbeat, as I said earlier, where people caring a little bit more and really looking to what is getting into their bodies. And it's, you know, from my perspective, I, I work with a few local farms, you know, farming is tough. You know, I, I don't know if you've had any farmers on on the podcast yet. But. I actually have just recently. I had Sarah Mater on of uh, Palouse Brands, and they do garbanzo beans. They're out in Washington, and um, you'll have to listen to that one. That was a great episode. They've uh, gone through his meteoric growth, but um, we didn't get into the particular challenges they have at the farm. I'm sure if she's listening to this, she's nodding her head. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they, the quick version of that I usually tell people is I started doing a dinner with a local farm. It's called Red Wiggler Farm here in Germantown, Maryland. Wait, you said Red Wiggler Farm? Yes, Red Wiggler, which is kind of another. Oh, I love that. I'm, yeah. I, I like fish, so I, I, I get the reference. That's good. It, yeah, exactly. So it's and it started as I went there with an open house. They gave me some vegetables and said, "Could you make something out of these?" So I had a little booth in the corner with a it was a sweet potato salad I made with a few different techniques in it. And then after that, Woody, the um, who runs the farm, he, he's like, "What if we did a dinner?" And so we started these dinners actually in the field. Um, you know, using all our product, you know, focusing on local. It's a they, cool visual. Imagine all those tables set up out there. That's kind of a, a cool idea. Oh, it's it, it's awesome. It was, I've I have a, a number of pictures from it, but the the piece of it that I always tell people is I start planning this obviously way in advance, and I begin with what last year's harvest was, what should be available during that time. And then a month out, I check in with Woody. I'm like, how are we look? And he's like, well, I, I'm not too sure about the snap peas, but we're going to have new potatoes. And I was like, okay, let's start tweaking the menu, look at the different dishes. Two two weeks later, okay, how are we looking? Uh, yeah, the herbs you were looking at, the dill was fried. There isn't going to be any of that. It got, and then the bugs got the carrots, and and it's and it's a constant source of like, exactly. It's whittling down the menu. Throw and, your hands up in the air, okay? Yeah, and it's the part I always enjoyed about it though is that's kind of how it should be. You know, think back. 30 years ago of you went to the supermarket and you got what was in season because we didn't have the robust transportation network and shipping. And you kind of had to eat seasonally, even though you weren't really aware you were doing it. And the part I've, I've a lot of chefs that were able to help me out with the dinner. And I always told them it makes it harder, but it makes it more fulfilling knowing that you're working off of the land. You know, this is somebody who, you know, Woody and his team do their best to take care of the vegetables, but there is ultimately either temperature or, you know, bugs or pests or something that could impede that. So, you know what, you got to be flexible, think on your feet and make it happen. And 
tying it all back to how, you know, farm to table and what people care about. What we saw last year at Tessie Mays is you know, obviously during March and uh, April, May, there was panic buying where people were literally buying everything in the supermarket they can get their hands on. And that we obviously saw some spikes in sales and we were always waiting for when it would start to trail off that, you know, they, they had bought all the product and they, all the households were full, but it never really stopped. And that's where from my own you know, introspection, looking at what may be going on is during that time, people were very nervous about their immune system. They were very, they were taking care of their kids and feeding them instead of the schools. They were paying more attention to what they were buying and what the quality of it was. And that's where I saw it as, as this tough time was everything everyone was going through, it allowed our products to speak for themselves and really become something that people may have bought before that be, it then became something that integrated into their lives. When you talk about rebranding a restaurant, and this is obviously one of your areas of, of expertise um, because you're involved in product development and you you look at restaurant and bar renovations and all these things, um, how, how does one go about going through, what is that process of rebranding a restaurant? Cause we see a lot of company, a lot of restaurants that are trying to restart and they're probably going through this process right now. Yeah, absolutely. So th this is one that there's, there's a, <laughs> there's a roadmap, but there's a lot of different, uh, detours, ways, and sides you can look at. So this, this is kind of reaching back into my role at Marriott International, where I, I was, um, you know, director of design development and strategy for North and South America. So my role within that was once somebody was putting money into a hotel to take a space that was, you know, we'll say maybe past a prime or needed a refresh, and myself and the team I was on would get plugged in from a culinary perspective, a restaurant and bar perspective, and a design perspective. And a lot of that started with what the budget is, what the owner was looking for. Obviously, you want to make sure you satisfy your stakeholders and the people who are going to be cutting your check. And a lot of the times, the roadmap was able to be fit into that because, you know, the, the, the last thing you want to do is have somebody give you $2 million and then you <laughs> you go against it and change, change it up a little bit. But the first thing you need to understand is what people need out of that space. You know, so within a hotel, that's a little bit different from what an independent may be. So is there one restaurant? Is there a lobby bar? And how does it correlate with the, the outside is what, what else is around in your area? So we'll, we'll say my local town center has six different sandwich shops in it. There's, you know, sadly, I live in an area where most of them all chains. So the last thing that our area needs is another sandwich shop unless you're going to do it really good. So you need to understand is what is that area lacking and then start to focus on 
what are the attributes of that? Okay, this this need is not being served. What is the price point that this needs to fall between? Because the the price is really what informs the re the rest of the restaurant. Where, you know, when you know David Chang famously when he started Momofuku, he didn't put any noise dampering on anything. He cranked the music up really loud, and he was just kind of throwing a middle finger in the face of the the way restaurants were usually taken care of at the time he could do that. And everybody thought it was cool. But then now over the years, you know, even him himself has said, you know, we have to put some uh, noise control on, on the space because you can do a poured concrete floor. That'll save you a lot of money. It'll give you a look rest, uh, rustic look to the restaurant, but you've a lot of noise that's going to be bouncing off of that flat hard space. So the, the noise of that space is going to be loud. So is that what you're looking for? Or, you know, if you're going to try and find a, a more intimate date type spot, you need to keep that in mind with what's going into it. Also, what does a kitchen look like? How much, how, can they put out of that line? What do you focus on? Is there a signature service a piece of uh, equipment like a wood-fired oven or something along those lines? All these little bits and pieces you need to take and start to hone into what that experience is going to be for the guest from the tableware to what's on the table to what the servers wear. You know, a, a big thing not recently, but in the past few years, especially in a restaurant, once we started putting our restaurant servers in jeans as as opposed to a black pleated pant <laughs> that looked like every single server in every single hotel in the world, once we started putting people in jeans, it really freaked people out, you know, that we're used to the convention of what the servers used to look like. But when I would tell those people to walk outside to another restaurant, go to the cool gastro pub, what are they wearing? You know, they don't have a uniform, let alone a name tag and everyone's there and it's busy as hell. So we can stick with what we've been doing. That's slowly gone down, or we can reinvent, look at what the rest of in industry is doing and then pull from that and make it, make it happen. Were you involved in that type of an operation within the different uh, Marriotts? I mean, do, was that part of your part of your experience? Yeah, we. Depending on the amount of latitude we were given, my job would be to figure out what is not being served in that area. You know, by served, I mean a restaurant style, and the. The interesting wrinkle I had in this is these were sometimes cities that I had never been to. And that's where part of, you know, what I do is far, you know, is almost like an ongoing learning is I'm reading everything. I'm looking at all the sites. I'm seeing what's happening, seeing what's going on over there and different areas. And once we get a location that we need to work on, that's where I could take any of that knowledge that I, you know, had previously, but really start to hone in, okay, within a one mile radius, what is there? You know, so if somebody says, well, we, we really want to focus on barbecue. Well, one, that's, 
one, that's a tough sell if you were in a hotel setting because it's, it's a very specific genre of food. Yeah, and, I don't match the two together in my mind. Yeah, and that's, you know, and, and frankly, if, even if somebody's saying that this is the best barbecue place you've ever been to, if it's in a in a hotel, it just rings a little hollow. Not because we don't have people that are very experienced pitmasters. We've you know within Marriott there was a ton of them that were great, but as a side you know hobby that they would do, nothing you would try and turn around and monetize unless it was maybe a food truck or a banquet event where we could pull that in a more cohesive way to the guests, kind of set the expectations that this group, okay, you're having the barbecue experience. We can bring in all those pieces. But when you have the weary, weary traveler that just wants the club sandwich or something like that, and then you tell them, well, it's a barbecue club and it's got pulled pork on it. And <laughs> you just see their eyes glaze over and be like, why, why would you do that? So yeah. Why yeah. are you confusing me? Yeah. So a lot of the times what we would do is just, pull in what we could from the area, what, what the area may be known for and pull those items through, serve the items that some people are going to look for, and then give the chef some license to things that they may want to try items, dishes that they've worked on that they feel could really have some promise. And then just hone that into a cohesive story. And the, uh, you know, one, one good example is in Atlanta, we had worked on a project where, you know, obviously Atlanta, you could have Southern food, but our tagline was sophisticated Southern. So with that, it gave us a lane to stay in. So everything that went through from the plateware to the dishes, to the beverages, to the server's uniforms, you can look at it and say, is that sophisticated Southern? And if it's not, you know what, go back, rework on it until we get there. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You've got a guiding principle or mission, and if it just doesn't jive with that, it's easy. Hey, you throw it out. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, Tessimates. Again, that is just such a great brand, and you know, you as the, the vice president of culinary, you must be faced with all kinds of challenges, you know, on a daily basis from, you know, personnel to development, et cetera. You, you probably have like a personal philosophy, right, of, of how you manage, how you go about doing business. I think you touched on it with me a little bit offline. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your own, you know, personal philosophy here. Yeah, as as far as there's there's usually a mixed bag of things that we're <laughs> we're going through with every day, and my role, I, I it's a obviously a smaller com- company than Marriott, but it's one that when I was looking for a shift, it was aligning with the culture that I had been through with a few companies being smaller family-run company, which, you know, you could say that with with Marriott as well, but that one grew to a corporate behemoth. And along the way, all those layers get added in, and it kind of took the 
took the ability to kind of get things done and put your stamp stamp on them very quickly. And that's where with Tessie Mays, you know, it's a family company. Tessie Mays is, is a person. She's she's the, the brother's uh, mother. It's her, it's her nickname. And the philosophy and the DNA of the company is hustle, grit, getting it done, celebrating wins, taking care of the team, and just making things happen. You know, so when I when I talk about what what drives me and how I go through my day, you know, our our one of our common taglines we'll say to people, you know, or if we're working on a project is just LFG. And that's less <laughs> let's fucking go. And <laughs> yes. And and that really applies to how we make things happen. You know, I came in from this larger company. So I had a lot of tools in my tool belt. I've worked on a lot of different projects, a lot of different things. And I was able to translate that to not only working on the culinary pieces, but also new business development, people in context that I had worked before, but also you know, on, on Instagram, I, you know, I have a few hundred people, not, nothing, you know, not an influencer at all, but most of my page is all food and within stories or other pages, I'm showing things that I may be cooking, maybe a salad from lunch and I'll throw Tessie Mays in there. And I've had a few people reach out just saying that, but like, Hey, I saw this company, what's going on? I was like, well, I, I work for them now. <laughs> If you if you haven't noticed, but have you not noticed exactly? And and but also some of the other companies or restaurants I've gone to, we uh, there's been little partnership opportunities that have popped up. There's a there's a great sausage company out of Brooklyn, Seymour uh, Sausages, who was started by uh, you know a woman woman butcher Karen Nicoletti that she started spiking sausages with vegetables with a lot of vegetable component to it kind of you know uh reducing the amount of meat that people be eating there was a few interesting flavor profiles and i posted about them one time and they were like that dish looks great and i wrote back i was like you know you have sausage and we have things to dip sausages in we should set something up and lo and behold we did a little marketing partnership with them and and that that happened right there. And that's a lot of the organic things that have kind of happened since I've been able to pull over. And then especially with how much communication we have between the departments, you're always working on or talking with somebody. And that's the part that I really love is because you're, you're all working towards this goal. You're all want to make it happen. And the piece that I love is, as opposed to a, you know, a, a large, you know, layered company is we can turn things around very quickly. You know, we, we had one of our own on the go products that a retailer requested another skew uh, of that line. And from development to creation to production took four weeks which, you know, in, in the consumer prepared goods world, you know, depending on the size of the place, you know, that's six to eight months, maybe a year. So we, you know, 
we pull it together. We show it to Greg, the CEO, Kristen, the Tommy, my boss works through any little pieces, give it over to supply chain. They work at some of the kinks, our creative director, Mo pulls together some of the artwork. We get it done and then boom, we're out the door. So we're, we're incredibly nimble and we remain incredibly nimble. You you obviously have a deep passion for food, and you're probably you know a food forward guy. You couldn't be you know head of culinary if if you weren't. Do you have any like hiring advice for for people who have to hire individuals that are in your particular line of work? Yeah, this is something coming from a person that used to be responsible for hiring at properties and such, and as I talked about how understaffed places are exactly, it's hard to hire. It's hard to hire. And, but, you know, we'll say if the, you know, I'll I'll say if the world is a little bit normal, but then I'll kind of speak to another piece of the, the current with that. With me, it always was a thing when you're looking for someone, especially in the kitchen, you would have these older chefs that are like, well, what are your knife skills like? What Can you name the, the mother sauces? Can you do this? And I would just look at them shaking my head like, dude, like, <laughs> really, like you're going to ask someone what their knife skills are like? Like, you know, one, you need to see that. Like, You don't ask hello. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You, you know, you would hope Got that. Got onion. Yeah. So what I would always look for is – the personality, the demeanor, how does the person talk? How do they act? I I would start asking questions about what do you like to do? What's your hobby? Why do you like to do that? And from there, you can kind of piece together what this person is into a little bit. And before you'll throw somebody behind a line and, and just say, hey, can you can you flip this and grill this? You also got to remember, can, can they work with the team? You know, the last kitchen I managed had 55 people in it. Every different nationality. We had deaf people in there. We had motivated people. We had unmotivated people. And I had to look at how will this person interact with that and will they make it better? Now, with that said... That, you know, that was back then. But now, looking at now, how are you hiring for now? One, the the tough part of why, why people don't want to go back to work, you know, and this is my own perspective. This isn't from the company or anything. This is just me kind of reading the tea leaves is, do they have extended unemployment benefits? Yes. But also... People in the hospitality industry were given a little bit of pause to reevaluate what they want to do. You know, so when you turn on the news and people are like, you know, well, these people got to get back to work and what are they doing? They're holding everything up. But if your friend said to you, well, you know, Timmy's going to go backpacking in Europe for the summer and, and, you know, take some time and really decide on what he wants to do. It's like, well, like, that's great. That's great that Timmy can take the time and really figure out his life. But that's kind of what's going on now, you know, and and say, you know, the fact that people don't have to go back to a job right away and 
you know, and aren't going to be living in their car if they if they don't get that job, they can take that time to reevaluate what what they want to do. Like, you know, all that extra time with their family. And, you know, even myself, I never really, I never really stopped during this whole time, but I had a few pauses during COVID to realize, okay, I, you know, I love having the extra time with my family, but also I wasn't traveling at all. And now that I've been on the road a few more times, I was like, I, I need to travel a little bit. Like it's a, it's a part of my DNA over the last few years that I, you know, traveling to a place sucks, but once you're in another city and can run around and explore, that's something that gives me a, a large amount of gratification. So I now know that. So when you're looking for the people to hire, you really need to present a good case for why they should come work for you. You know, with within margins and business, you know, obviously you can only pay to a certain amount, but what else are you doing? Is it a place where you're, you know, fostering the teamwork, where you're making sure that if there is any kind of a benefit that they can work on, it's it's almost like you're advertising yourself to a customer but that customer is going to come in and work in your restaurant. I mean, you can have a great career in food and beverage. I think you just have to show people that this job may be a stepping stone, but these are the skills you're going to get to help you along the way. You said a number of things back there that I wanted to kind of touch on, and that is if a lot of the workers were younger, I wonder if they had opportunities to like not renew their lease, you know, did they go back home? Yeah, it, it's something that, you know, even looking at now, you know, the working from home piece where, you know, for the beginning of when I started working at Tessie Bay's, I, the offices were pretty much shut down to any of the administrative workers, you know, due to COVID. But with myself and my boss, we would have to go in to one grab product, work through R&D items, and it just made sense to be there. But we're also a plant that produces all the items too. So we obviously have to have those staffed all the time. But, but we were very mindful as a company not to have too many people there that weren't. So a large amount of last year and even to this day, I've been working from home, but also I'm equipped to work from home. I have... You know, obviously my computer desk set up. I have a little photography studio set up for when I need to do some documentation. And when I'm working through development, putting the actual item together is one thing, but then I have to also work through scaling the item. How does it fit into this matrix of hitting, you know, this amount per item? And then it starts to get into Excel and what, I, what I've lovingly dubbed food math to make sure, you know, how you can take this item, how does it fit into a case, what does that all look like, and all the kind of, you know, less sexy logistical items. But I don't need to be in an office somewhere else to do that. I can do that on my laptop. So I'm fortunate to have the ability to do that. But as the world is kind of going back, you know, a lot of the tech companies, I think, are leading that space where Google's just said, you know what, work you can work from home forever. Like, that's fine. But knowing that a good amount of the people work there, you know, they, some, they need to go into an office. Some people want to go into an office 
And we're at this interesting inflection point where labor, kind of as I described before from a more hourly job, but even even at a mid-level and management job, they have a little bit of an upper hand. You know, it becomes, okay, if X company is paying me the same amount as Y company and Y company wants to be in the office for four days a week and the other one says work wherever you want to, you get to make the decision. So, you know, how long that'll be, I'm not really sure, but, you know, from all levels down, especially in hospitality, that is the decision that people now have the ability to make versus being forced to make it. Yeah, I'm really torn on it personally. I I like the idea of working from home, but for me, I just I just miss not being around and getting all the the interaction. And I I get energized being around people, and it's just it's very difficult to to not have that. So it is definitely, as you said, it's an inflection point, and every brand's going to have to figure out what makes sense for them. I do know Facebook has said. That yeah, you can continue to work from home, but if you're going to leave California and try to go to some place where it's cheaper, they're going to lower your salary. Yeah, that's that's the interesting one. That, that was interesting. I thought, oh, okay. And um, it's and you know what that that's them protecting their own because you know especially here with uh, you know the different zone you know testing me we're we're based out of Baltimore we don't have zones or anything but working for Marriott there was different payment zones and depending on the cost of living in the area that dictated what your salary would be out of a range and they you know I I we've been hearing a little bit of that that they you know said if you're going to work remotely exactly that but it's it's one that you, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I'm sociable. I need to be around people. And even two weeks ago, I had my first in-person meeting with another company. And it was weird to have 20 people in a room, but it, it was pretty awesome to have 20 people in a room too. You can go there and, you know, there's there's a lot of things that you can get done over Zoom, but there's a few nuances to being in person and things that you can kind of, uh, you know, get once you, you know, especially if you go out and grab dinner with somebody, it's a lot more of a holistic experience. It's more LFG. <laughs> exactly. It's, um, I mean, it, it is, I mean, let's face it. Well, I, I, as we wrap up, I'm curious, You've worked for you know you've worked for some very big iconic brands, but are there any brands that you love and follow that inspire you? Um, it's it's probably the ones that I put you on the spot there. I know you weren't expecting that one. Now, now are we now what genre are we talking about? Are we talking? It's about wide things? open, wide open to you, because we all take inspiration from different places and we weave it into our work. Yeah, I I usually look around at the things that I have and use. So we, you know, obviously Apple products. It's you know that's that's a fair <laughs> it's a fairly softball one to say, but you know they. I'm not going to accept that one. Yeah, I so would they, not accept Apple but, as an answer. But you know what, the latest one, and th- this is you know I, I could speak to this one a little bit more recently. So I I got a Peloton recently which it's like, oh, you got a Peloton now. But 
I absolutely love the thing. And when I sit back and you listen, you know, anyone that has one, you never hear anything bad about it. Like every, everyone is a fanatic about it. Everyone. So I'm not one to buy into that. I'm like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. And then. So how often are you writing? When I'm home, it's pretty much every day. And then, so what, but I, I started to look at how, like, but my, my internal conversation is where does the fantasism come from? Like, how do they get people so fevered about this product? And after owning it for a month, you kind of see it like within the instructors, you start to, you know, realize the ones you like more than others, but then it's not just a bike because they have different boot camp classes now that you can integrate in and out of the bike. It's connected to your friends that you can kind of pull into and you can kind of race against them. And so it's, it's, it's like you're in a class, but you're in a community yeah, they, it's just a community, isn't it? Yeah, and they they weave it together pretty seamlessly, and you know it's something from my perspective watching what they continue to do with music, what they continue, uh, the products that they'll continue to in, innovate. I'm just very impressed with that. That everything kind of, um, you know, now that I have one, you really see what the sauce is about. And can you ride without a, an instructor? Can you just get on and do a, a route? You can. That's that's where when I when I first dragged myself into a, uh, a the store to check one out, they actually showed me that there's like these little scenic rides. Like you can be in Hawaii, and there's a guy in front of you, and you're driving through the Wakalea Forest, like probably butchered that name, but it was this area and I happened to have gone to, um, you know, been to Hawaii where that was. And I was like, Holy shit. Like this is, that's it. Yeah. This is pretty cool. I'm bike riding in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I looked at that. I was like, wow. And that kind of like pushed me over the edge. I was like, I should try this. And, and then of course, like you start getting into classes and looking at your output and then comparing yourself to the community and, and then you get too competitive and I haven't done a scenic ride since. (laughs) That's well, I don't want to, you know, have all of our listeners drop off because we get into <laughs> yeah. That's where we'll start going down a wormhole. We go down this hole, but I will products. tell you. So I'm not on Peloton, but I'm on Zwift. So I took my road bike and I bought a smart trainer, and we have an app that we uh, use with Bluetooth to the smart trainer, and you do these group rides, you do races, you you know all this community, everything you're talking about. It's super competitive, super fun, and you're tracking watts and, you know, your watts per kilogram, how much, how fast are you going? And, yeah, it's it, it, it definitely pulls the, the, the competitor out in you. Yeah, and it's, you know, and it's akin to, you know, prior to this, I used to do CrossFit and everyone would put their... I did not know there. that. Yeah, they... I still do a so little you, bit. At you, home you were a member of a box. Yes. I, I was as well. I was a box member for some time. Yeah, and and even now, um, my wife, uh, she does Orange Theory, which she continues to do. And it's same thing there. You're kind of competing to, you know, drive a health level. There's a large part of community. And, and 
you know, th that's another organization that has a lot of passionate people that follow yeah, it. So that's I, the hit model, high impact training. They, that's, that's big. We've got orange theory out here too. Yeah. And that's, um, and that's what I think, you know, tying it back to the brand. I mean, that's, that's what we have at Tessime. You know, we are the consumers. We have their passionate brand advocates and we want to continue to grow that. And, you know, as our, you know, our CEO, Greg Vetter says, he goes, he's not looking to just get dressing products out there. He wants to make clean food and clean products more available to all consumers. So when you talk about the, uh, you know, what's the guiding light of what we're focusing on, that's it. And that's what we've thankfully been able to do over these years. Well, as we wrap up, is there any particular opening or need that you're aware of anywhere in the company that someone has heard this conversation and they want to LFG too? They want to get that resume <laughs> over. They want to start work. Are there good time now to you know put a shout out? Any uh, and if if there's not any open needs, that that's fine. People can just go to the career page and, and check it out. Yeah, tactically, if you want to figure out exactly what's open, um, usually LinkedIn under our profile, we post some of the jobs there. That's the better place to check it. Okay. Yeah. And it's, you know, with, with, with us, there's a lot of people that want to come work for us. We're, you know, we're fortunate with the, the culture and the product that we have. We, we get people coming in, but we're always looking for good people. So take a look there. And, you know, if not, you can reach out. I'll connect you to the right people. So we're, uh, we got to go. We need people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're speaking my language. I know, as as a headhunter in the food and beverage space, it's all about it's all about the talent. Um, final thought: Where do people find you on the socials? Obviously, I'm gonna I'm gonna tag you on LinkedIn, but are there other ones? You, did you mention Instagram? Yeah, Instagram is probably my most interesting. The, on that, what's your handle there? Yeah, I'm I'm DMV Chef Travels. So. DMV is uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia, kind of our, our little area. So DMV Chef Travels. And if you type it in, you see a bunch of food pictures. That's me. <laughs> awesome. We'll tag it. We'll follow you. That'll be a lot of fun. Well, Tom, this has just been fantastic. It's been great to get to know you a little bit and your philosophy on, you know, how to rebrand a restaurant, how to launch something, you know, following the roadmap and all the other little tidbits and pieces of advice that you've you've given us and a little bit of a window into Tessame's, which is a, a great brand um, i would say we are definite big brand uh, advocates for you guys and my wife just had to make sure you know that she absolutely loves <laughs> your balsamic vinegar i'm like that's oh, fine i'll tell them it's uh that's you know that's advertising that you don't buy you know it's just yeah, awesome. we yeah we'll, we'll have to we'll have to work on a little care package for you. I I'm, I may know a guy who <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> can find some of that stuff. Wink, yeah. wink. Yeah. Well, in all seriousness, thank you so much for joining us here uh, at Winning at Work, Tom, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. No, it was great speaking with you. Appreciate the time, and um, you know, hope you and everyone else just uh, be well. Absolutely. Talk to you soon.